This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. You've been hearing it in the news uh, all morning long. Eight people now have been arrested in connection with the attack in Manchester in both the UK and Libya. This thing is spreading out, um, including the father and brother of the bomber. Uh, Police in Manchester have also decided, and this is really interesting, that they will no longer be sharing intelligence with the U.S., saying their leaks to the media undermine the ongoing investigation. And uh, these are... They seem to take this stuff pretty seriously when it comes to the logistics of investigating terror uh, over in Europe. And uh, I think that's the part of this uh, outside of the the tragedy itself, the event itself, that I find the most fascinating is how they're able to toss that net over so many areas so quickly and be able to uh, get the logistics in place and act so quickly uh, to kind of knock down... I don't know what you call them, sparks or where there's a little bit of smoldering going on, uh, get in there and uh, kind of uh, put the kibosh on it. It's It's got to be an incredibly difficult job. And that's why uh, I'm pleased to welcome to uh, our show this morning, Phil Gursky. He's the president and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting in Ottawa. Phil, uh, good to talk to you this morning. Thanks for the time. Morning, Jamie. How are you today? I'm, I'm okay. Uh, I think the thing that I find as I said, so amazing about uh, this story and and others that have come before it is how the uh, how the law enforcement agencies uh, in Europe seem to be able to work in great concert um, to get things done. I mean, we can't prevent every terrorist attack, obviously, because they still occur. Um, but boy, do they ever uh, swoop down and and get busy? Talk to me about the logistics of of trying to uh, have different, uh, you know, police organizations working together? Sure. So it doesn't surprise me at all, actually, because, I, you know, I spent 30 years working for CSIS and CSE here in Canada. Right. And, you know, the British, obviously the British services are, are huge allies of, of ours under the Five Eyes Alliance, and they're very, very good at what they do. They've, they've, been, they've been doing this for, for decades. They're one of the world's oldest intelligence services. They did it during the IRA bombings. They've done it under these jihadi bombings. So they've got a lot of experience in it, and they're very good at what they do. In fact, I would rate them amongst probably the top two or three intelligence agencies in the world. And they've they've basically had to forge their practices because they've they've been faced with this for such a long time. So it doesn't surprise me at all that they're good at what they do. Yeah, and and so it's it's a practice makes perfect kind of thing? In some ways, yeah. And it it has to do with, you know, how do you recruit your human sources? How do you uh, gather and store data? And, I, you know, there's a bigger issue here, and we've had this debate here in Canada about CSIS and, and, and CSC and how they collect data and how they store it. You know, should they keep it, should they not keep it, should they destroy it kind of thing. You know, if, if you collect stuff and you get rid of it, it doesn't help you the next day when your investigation says, hey, gee, I wish I had kept that piece of information that I threw out. So we have to have this debate here in this country as well because I don't think people understand how this thing really works. Right, Phil. So you're touching on a really interesting thing here, and that that's the storage of data or information. So... You know, given the the era that we live in now, where everybody, almost everybody, has enormous amounts of data and information flooding into their hands, literally every single day, how are uh, law enforcement agencies able to filter through all of that, determine what in fact uh, is uh, you know important, credible? Um, and what they should hang on to and what they should get rid of. Seems to me that's a tall order all by itself. Oh, you're absolutely right, Jamie. You asked some great questions, and it's not easy. I mean, you know, when I worked in, in signals intelligence, you're, you're talking you know, gazillions of pieces of data that you collect, 
And it, it, it basically, it's, you know, you, you sort of mentioned it before, you kind of learn by doing. You learn to, to realize what's significant and what's not. You learn to realize what's reliable and what's not, because lots of information is crap. We're certainly seeing that south of the border these days with false news and things like that. So it is, it's basically, it, it's an art and, 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 it's, and a science at the same time. And through, you know, decades of experience, you, you kind of learn these things. And, but, you, you know, not to say mistakes aren't made. Mistakes are made. But I would, uh, I'm, obviously, I'm biased. But I would tend to uh, err on the, on the side that these people know what they're doing. They're very professional. Yeah, I don't doubt it. But are there enough of those professionals who do know what they're doing to still deal with the pile of stuff that's coming through? And when you add in to the fact that you've got trolls out there, as I guess they're yeah. called, um, happily feeding nonsense into all kinds of uh, uh, databases and online forums and social media and so on and so forth, uh, do we have enough uh, people who know what they're doing uh, to be able to get through all, all of the information. It seems to me it could end up being a huge time-wasting thing if you don't if you don't have enough people. No, I think you're right. And look at intelligence agencies and law enforcement. Even you, you know, your, your police force in Hamilton always needs more resources. You could always use more resources. Right. We got to bear in mind too, though, that there are algorithms and programs that can help with this. But you know, it, you're right. And in, 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 you know, when I started in, in intelligence more than 35 years ago now. It was bad back then in terms of, of information gathering and trying to sift through it. I can't even imagine what it's like. And I've been retired for two years now. What it's like to sift through all this data—it's it's a huge challenge. And like you said, a lot of it's a lot of it's bogus, intentionally bogus, and you got to try and figure that out. So it, it, it's really hard. So um, you know, knowing that, how do how do law enforcement agencies um, go about? Uh, doing something with the information once once we're past the stage where somebody has filtered through it and said okay here's here's a good lead or here's a stack of of information that you at the next level need to to look at and consider what happens at that point in an investigation a lot of it's based on partnerships so the you know the primary um agency in the united kingdom right now is mi5 which is basically the, the thesis in the united kingdom so they all have information, but they also have a plethora of relationships with the Metropolitan Police, with border services, with all kinds of British agencies, not to mention the fact that they have their allies they can count on. Although, as you mentioned, the, you know, the, the Brits aren't real happy with the Americans right now, and rightfully so, because they seem to be treating intelligence in a very cavalier manner. But, you know, intelligence agencies rely on, on, on two primary principles. One is that information is shared. And it's the fact they have great partners in, in both domestically and internationally. And you rely on those partners in a crisis situation. And I'm, I'm, I'm not surprised, but I still am kind of amazed at how quickly the Brits have, have made the arrest and drawn these, these both domestic and international links to what happened in Manchester. It just goes to show again, they know what they're doing. Yeah, I've often heard that uh, the, the Brits and the Israelis um, are the best at, at doing this kind of thing. Uh, do, do the, you know, and I, I think that probably the, maybe the uh, edge goes to the Israelis. Do do they train each other, these two countries? Do they work together on, on training programs to help each other out? Do you well, know? The strong, yeah, well, the, the strongest sort of set of sharing relationships, obviously, is amongst the Five Eyes partners, those so-called Anglo countries of which Canada is a member. But there are sort of concentric circles of sharing, right? So, we you know, we'll deal, obviously, with like-minded European partners, you know, more usually than we deal, for example, with the Pakistanis or the Afghans, for obvious reasons, cultural, historical, et cetera. Israel's kind of in one of those clubs as well. And there's, there's a, you know, um, the thing with intelligence, it's all about trust. Uh, if you trust your partner, you'll work with them. And if you don't trust your partner, you won't. And I, I don't want to harp on this, but 
you know, the Trump administration, what they're doing with, with, with leaking intelligence is not helping. And it's helping to just, it's just destroying that, that system of trust, which is really, really hard to establish. And once it's broken, it's almost impossible to reestablish. That's a pretty serious um, development. Uh, you know, the, <clears throat> the investigators saying that they will not share intelligence with the U.S. I, I don't think I can ever remember a time in my life when that's been said. Um, I, that is, to me, the, one of the biggest stories of the day today. You know, oh, you're right. And I, I'll tell you, I've never seen it. And I worked 32 years in intelligence, and I've never come across a situation where you said, we can't share with the Americans because we don't trust them. So, you know, let's not put uh, make too much of it. There's no way the Brits are going to quit the Five Eyes relationship. Uh, we, you know, they get a lot more than, or well, they get a lot as well as they give. So same as with us here in Canada. But yeah, I've never seen a situation where, Something has happened where a major, major partner has said, look at, you know what, you've done some things in the past, in the recent past, and we're not sure we can trust you anymore, so we're going to turn off the taps. That is unprecedented in my experience. And, and you know, this goes back, the, the, the U.S. Uh, problem, if you will, with intelligence go, goes back and predates 9-11. Because, it, it, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Phil, it was, it was uh, just after 9-11 that... Uh, you know, lots of uh, whistleblowers, so to speak, within the intelligence community said, hey, listen, everybody out there, uh, you know, Ma and Pa, Joe Citizen, you know, they've been cutting us back for years and years. We we don't have human beings doing uh, much intelligence anymore. Uh, they just sort of pulled all those resources back. And Phil, you and I just a few minutes ago talked about how important, particularly now, it is to have human beings that know what they're doing with experience, um, wading through all of the massive amounts of data and information that, that, that comes forward. Has the U.S. Uh, done anything since 9-11 to correct the problem that they partially uh, blamed for 9-11? Hard for me to say, uh, not having a real inside of you into the U.S. intelligence community, but I, I will confirm what you just said, and this is not a state secret, it's open information. It was acknowledged in 9-11 that the Americans had decided that the technical solution uh, was better than the human solution, meaning they put a lot more um, effort and in investment and resources into signals intelligence than human intelligence, and that proved to be a problem. Um, look, at both, all kinds of intelligence is, is necessary. I mean, I've, I've worked in both in Canada, 15 years at CSIS, 17 at CSE. I understand it. Um, so you can't say, well, just do signal, just do human, you have to do both. But when you put all your eggs in one basket, in any, in any kind of you know, venue in life, that's never a good thing, right? And I think that maybe they, they kind of didn't pay enough attention to the human element uh, before 9-11. I'm hoping they've kind of changed things since then. I really don't know, but it's, you know, I, hope, I hope that the lesson was learned in that sense. Uh, this story, Phil, uh, goes to show that um, th- this is, a, this is a, uh, you know, a, a, an act or a network, if you will, that extends way beyond Manchester. Obviously, it's a, it's much bigger than that. We have an arrest in Libya. Who knows where the next one will be? Uh, maybe in Canada. I mean, we we have a, a sense here in Canada, Phil, I think still, that we're somewhat immune to this. This this really isn't likely to happen here. This is Canada. Everybody loves us. Yeah. <laughs> that's Even terrorists. False. That's you know? completely false. I mean, I don't want to fear mongering because the situation is not as bad here as it is in the UK for all kinds of reasons. Um, we do have a problem here, but I think we're, we're kind of on top of it with these of the RCMP. But to your first point, I'm not surprised at all that there have been arrests made in Libya. This is an international phenomenon, and people are linked either in the real world or in the virtual world all over the place. So the fact that we may have had somebody inspire or provide direction or instructions in a different country, we've seen that in case after case after case. So 
But again, it speaks to the fact that the Brits had the intel, had some intelligence, were able to gain more intelligence and, and leverage their partners to make the arrest. And that's a good thing that people should recognize. Right. And, and so Li- Libya is, is now into this uh, story. Uh, you know, is there any way to predict uh, where the next, uh, you know, byline will come from? Will it come from Italy? Will it come from, you know, China? Where will, it, where will the next one come from? There's no way yeah. of telling, is there? There, there isn't. The Libya one makes sense, right? Because the, the bomber uh, was born in Manchester from Libyan parents who fled the Qaddafi regime. Mm-hmm. Um, I read some stuff in the last couple hours that suggests that maybe the family was involved already in, with a group called the Libya Islamic Fighting Group, which kind of fought the Qaddafi regime in the 2000s. So there already may have been some extremist things from the family from that perspective. But that doesn't surprise me at all that they've gone back back to, to whatever Libyan authorities there are. And that's a real challenge now because there are several governments competing for power in Libya. And maybe gotten some hints from them as to who was who was involved, but yeah, this this could take some incredibly twisted international turns in the days of Duncan. I think for the average person uh, listening to the coverage and watching this, uh, it also becomes a bit overwhelming to keep track of all of the various monikers that go along with uh, these ex- extremists, these uh, terrorist groups. Um, is it as difficult for investigators to keep track of? Uh, of all of these different uh, groups and, and splinter groups? It is. I mean, we don't get hung up on terminology as much as the public does, right? I mean, within CSIS, we don't have arguments as, oh, do we call it Islamist? Do we call it Jihadist? We don't, we don't waste our time with that kind of stuff because we're too busy doing investigations. But yeah, it, 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 is, it is complicated. Terrorism is an international phenomenon. People know people all over the world, and they communicate, and they, and they share ideas, and they share inspiration. So again, it speaks to the fact that you know, we, we here in Canada can't do it all by ourselves, and neither can the Americans, by the way, which people think they can do everything. They can't. This is why you rely on those partnerships. This is why the partnerships are important, and it's important that you don't break them and you don't do things to jeopardize the partnerships, as the Americans, unfortunately, appear to have been done, not just with the, the leak of the intelligence um, to the Russians, which came from Israel, but as you said, the U.K. says we're not going to share on Manchester. That's, that's not a good development. Is, um, is spying, if you will, uh, or intelligence gathering uh, something that is done face-to-face in, in today's world uh, like we see in the James Bond movies? Or is everything now done the way uh, we human beings interact uh, every single day? It's strictly, nobody sees anybody anymore. It's all done, uh, you know, over electronic devices and that sort of thing. Does anybody sit and meet and talk? Uh, what happens? Oh, absolutely. It's all of the above. So, you know, obviously intelligence agencies would be stupid not to take advantage of, you know, virtual meetings and, and social media and stuff like that. But again, when you're talking about a, uh, a series of relationships that are based on trust, trust between human beings, the only way to establish it is to meet face-to-face. Have a meeting, have a meal, share a beer, whatever. That's how intelligence officers and intelligence analysts interact. So you can't get rid of the human element. Um, it's really important. And, of course, in, in, a, in an era of shrinking budgets and shrinking resources, you can't always, you know, travel to see your counterpart. And I'm not sure that's a good idea. I mean, I understand we have to be responsible with the public first, but there's not there's nothing that um, substitutes for face-to-face communication. Absolutely not. It's pretty amazing uh, for anybody, I think, if they take the time to stand back and look at uh, Britain and, you know, look at the U.K. and the size of the landmass uh, that is, is you know, uh, needs to be secured compared to a country the size of Canada. A kind of, that you know, on the, at, to the north, borders with with uh, Russia, the the um, the United States, the size that it is, with the population size that it is, and and how you know police agencies and investigators are really 
showing us up over there in a lot of ways. It's I think if we're sitting here, yeah, we're far away from this particular incident, but I think uh, this is serving as a bit of a wake-up call uh, to all of us. Wouldn't you agree? Uh, yes and no. I mean, look, at you know, the problem they have over there is, is, is due in large part to the fact that MI5, so the, the, the UK equivalent of CSIS, yeah. has stated publicly they've identified between three and 10,000 people that they're worried about, people that subscribe to the same ideology that Mr. Abadie did on Manchester the other night. We don't have 10,000 people of interest here. We have a couple hundred at most, same okay. with the Americans. Okay. So there's, it's, it's orders of magnitude different. Yes, we have a, you know, a large geography, but let's face it, we also have a large country where no one lives. Yeah, right? that's true. A lot of that land mass is, is unoccupied. Yeah, it, it, shouldn't, it shouldn't surprise you. There aren't a lot of investigations in Nunavut when it comes to this one. It's extremely <laughs> okay. well, you know, well, you know what, Phil? I'm going to take your statistics uh, about persons of interest here, and I'm going to feel better about, uh, about things uh, as I go through the rest of the day. Uh, Phil Gursky, uh, President and CEO of uh, Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, enjoyed the chat this morning. Thanks so much. Thanks, Jamie. Have Take a good care. day. You too. Bye-bye. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Karim uh, Baratov, the uh, Canadian citizen from Ancaster, uh, the young man uh, with the fancy cars and all of that stuff, uh, has been uh, requested for extradition to the U.S. over alleged ties to that 2014 Yahoo data breach that saw over 500 million accounts improperly accessed. These included journalists and politicians. Uh, the question is, what might obstruct Baratov from being extradited? Uh, and what kind of penalty could he face? Uh, we have uh, Joseph Nurberger on. He's a criminal defense lawyer uh, with Nurberger and Partners uh, Law Firm in Toronto. Joseph, thanks for being with us this morning. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. This uh, Baratov story, first of all, let's let's talk about extradition. Uh, yep. Is this a fait accompli that, yep. you know, the U- it is. The U.S. wants them, we're handing them over. Yeah, I mean, I, I used to do a, a ton of extradition work, and um, really the strategy that I would employ, unless it was a jurisdiction where their um, system of justice is very questionable. So if you're dealing with a third-world country where there's issues with respect to death penalty or um, evidentiary practices which are truly suspect, those are cases where you may have charter challenges and other arguments to try and prevent extradition. Uh, also, if somebody's charged in Canada in what might be a multi-jurisdictional type of case, would there be some duplicity in the charges? Other than that, um, if you're extraditing to somewhere like the United States or the UK, generally by now, since he's had his bail hearing, the case uh, to base extradition would be well prepared and have been provided to the Department of Justice in Canada. So he's entitled to an extradition hearing, but the the actual threshold to commit him is a fairly low threshold. And then once committed, uh, the individual who is sought for extradition uh, will then make submissions to the Minister of Justice. It's in very rare circumstances the Minister of Justice will ever deny extradition then the, the person can have a right of appeal to the Court of Appeal, so they can prolong the process somewhat. But um, except in very rare circumstances, uh, people who are sought in Canada for uh, other jurisdictions that have legitimate uh, systems of justice, they get extradited. What's going to happen to this guy when he does? Well, I don't know the full extent of the evidence against him in the United States, but this type of stuff is very serious. And you, you can see from the media plays from the United States the concerns about any type of cyber attacks or 
activities that involve Russian intelligence or agents on behalf of Russia. And this gentleman down in the United States could be looking at a prolonged trial um, and also, if, if convicted of any number of these indictments, could be looking at um, well over double-digit sentence in the United States. So this is a very, very serious matter. I, I, I wonder, as a, as a rank amateur armchair observer of, of all of these matters, and you, of course, being an expert on them, if, um, you know, if what is happening in the United States uh, now uh, is something that will slow a process down for a guy like uh, Baratov uh, so that he's kind of in the system down there. Once he's extradited, he's in the system. Uh, and he's just kind of held, and he's just held and held and held while they f- kind of get their act together down there or fall further apart the way they seem to be doing. It, it doesn't look good for this guy either way, right? Well, I, I can say this because I have experience with cases in the United States. Yeah. So I can tell you their system is, is quite um, swift. It's much more swift than Canada. Really? And, oh, yeah. And I, and I will say this also. I much Canadians don't realize uh, how better our system in Canada is than the United States, because in Canada, we're entitled to what we call full disclosure. So we get very detailed, voluminous materials from the prosecution authorities in order to defend a case. In various jurisdictions in the United States, their rules of disclosure are limited and time-limited. So you may not get access to all the information you need in a timely fashion, but the process is not held up. It is expedited. Uh, in certain cases, even complex fraud cases, which I've had experience on in the U.S., you can get to trial within a year. So it can move very fast. And whatever is going on through the uh, Department of Justice investigations in the United States or the Senate or Congress or whatever about ties with Russia and, and the uh, president, that has nothing to do with this case. This gentleman will go down and he'll have to have some attorney there. Either he'll get appointed a federal uh, public defender's office, which is generally pretty good in the United States, and it will move along. And, you know, as a strategy to employ sometimes, rather than... To, the other thing listeners have to understand is when a Canadian is held uh, in Canada pending extradition, the time that he spends in custody here does not count towards any penalty he may receive in the U.S. So if somebody fights extradition here and drags it out for a year and a half to two years and they remain in custody, that doesn't lessen any sentence in the United States. So sometimes in cases that I've had, we've employed a strategy to hire a U.S. lawyer immediately for the client, so we apply resources to that, get them transferred to the United States so that they can begin defending themselves. Joseph Newberger is our guest. He's a criminal defense lawyer uh, with Newberger and Partners uh, in Toronto. Uh, Joseph, what typically what kinds of crimes uh, up, you know apply to extradition deals between countries everything so um, fraud assault cases sexual assault cases homicide um, you know it, it runs the gamut of whatever we have in our criminal code uh, could be sought for extradition if the person's committing the offense or had committed the offense in another jurisdiction all that you have to look out for is what we call comedy in, in the industry is that whatever offense they're charged with in this other jurisdiction, so whatever we call them, the requesting state, whether it's Germany, UK, United States, we need to make sure that what they're charged with uh, is similar to a legitimate offense in Canada. If it's something which is not a legitimate offense, then there's a problem with extradition and a person may not be extradited. But whatever we have in the criminal code, you can run the gamut on it. 
a person could be extradited if they committed that offense in a foreign jurisdiction. One of the common ones these days, because of the Internet, are cases involving uh, child pornography and Internet luring, because individuals could be uh, engaged in contacting uh, vulnerable individuals in other jurisdictions, and those other jurisdictions will seek extradition if a criminal offense has been committed. So that has been significant over the last several years. So let's let's review again for people that may be just joining us. What kinds of penalties uh, this guy uh, Baratov could be facing if he's convicted of any of these uh, crimes that he's charged with? Well, the other thing to understand is that he'll be charged with federal offenses. So these are offenses that cross borders. So in the United States, there's state prosecutions and federal prosecutions, different than Canada. And the federal prosecutions, if convicted, they have the federal sentencing guidelines in the United States, which is really a mathematical grid. And there's been a lot of recoil uh, by judges in the United States over the last decade from those guidelines because they can be very crushing. So an individual for drug cases, for example, even involving marijuana, could get a 20-year sentence which in Canada you'd get two or three years, and that's why they have over-incarceration in the United States. So Baratov is looking at, if convicted of a number of these offenses, and, and we can't presume guilt, we have to presume innocence, um, he, he could look at double digits, and that could be 15, 20, 25 years, or even more, and that's very, very significant. So it will be in his interest to make sure he is well defended in the United States and has a lawyer who's experienced enough in order to scrutinize this evidence, because who knows, it may, it may not be, sufficient for convictions i don't know you know the, the there was a time uh, i don't know if you'd agree with me on this but there seemed to be a time when when uh computer crime if you will uh, would have been considered sort of white collar crime uh, less um threatening uh, or, or uh, you know fewer victims uh, than than violent physical crime but it appears that that is changing a lot isn't it in this world we live in it, it, it is. So we've seen a change, uh, you know, since the, since the 2008-2009 blow-up uh, with the banking system, you've seen a change involved, uh, involving financial crimes and then also computer-related, uh, computer-related offenses where it could involve frauds of individuals or institutions or, um, you know, in other cases involving uh, corporate information, etc. So uh, whether we call them white collar or not, the sentences uh, have gone up both in Canada and the United States for those offenses significantly. Yeah, they're ruining lives. Uh, these crimes—they're liter- literally ruining lives, and in some cases, many, many lives. Right? When we talk about financial frauds, we talk about things that um, de- you know, data breaches that um, could lead to yeah. security breaches. Uh, the stakes are pretty high. It is. I mean, you know, we have to distinguish in frauds because I, I've done a lot with respect to financial crimes. And, you know, we have to distinguish sometimes between who the complainant or the victim is. So if it's a financial institution and, you know, it involves some sort of stock manipulation, it may not really strike to the heart of individuals. It's different than maybe defrauding a franchise or a small company where somebody is, is siphoning money from that company and it's a breach of trust and that company could suffer bankruptcy. So there's more of an immediate loss or if it's out of uh, individuals accounts uh, people who are more vulnerable old age uh, individuals who are relying on pension funds or with respect to their investments so those are extremely vulnerable individuals where you see sentences are significant but they are also significant when you have institutional victims but you know uh, some of these larger companies 
you know, I don't, my, my sympathies don't, you know, certainly the banking industry don't go the same towards them as they would to uh, a senior citizen who's been defrauded through some sort of uh, scam investment. Yeah, uh, definitely. Uh, so in terms of timelines, uh, Joseph, uh, Kareem Baratov, uh, how long will it take to get him extradited? Well, he could have an extradition hearing within the, the next 90 days uh, to 120 days. Uh, extradition hearings uh, wouldn't necessarily take very long because it's basically a paper case. All the uh, Department of Justice, uh, or public prosecution as we call them now, they just tender a statement of the case. There could be one witness, uh, but it's not extensive. Uh, the defense can bring all sorts of arguments, including charter challenges, which may prolong it. So a uh, hearing may be anywhere from three months from now to a year from now, and then if they want to uh, make submissions to the minister and then appeal, it could be held up as much as two years. All right. Uh, Joseph Newberger, a criminal defense lawyer with Newberger and Partners uh, in Toronto. Thanks for spending some time with us this morning and uh, educating us. Appreciate it. Always a pleasure. Have a great Take day. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Lots of water. Um, and in all seriousness, I mean, it's 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 causing big headaches. We heard earlier this week about, you know, I forget how many Olympic-sized swimming pools. I think it was 13 or something. Olympic-sized swimming pools, uh, you, you know, uh, liters and liters of raw sewage had to be uh, dumped into Hamilton Harbor uh, because the Woodward Sewage Treatment Plant couldn't couldn't keep up, couldn't handle it. Um, you know, that, we don't like hearing things like that. These are... but. Things have to be done. We've got $2.5 million in damage caused here in the city of Hamilton by lots of water, excessive water. So far, more than 170 millimeters of rain has dropped in May and in April. Uh, the damage caused includes uh, flooding, obviously, washed out roads, and a destroyed uh, public viewing platform at uh, 50 Point uh, Parkette. Uh, I was in Toronto on the weekend and had the opportunity to walk along the boardwalk at uh, Q Beach and Woodbine Beaches. Uh, and the city of Toronto has posted signs along there kind of explaining what's going on because the, the, the water levels in Lake Ontario are so high that there's uh, erosion along the shoreline. I know we've got some of that here as well. And it was quite something to see. You looked and saw these large masses of, of water right up on the beach where the, normally that wouldn't happen. They've tried to kind of uh, pumping it out, but the water just comes right back up. Um, they figure that, you know, when we get into the summer months and the hotter days, that evaporation uh, will take care of it. But for now, it's a, a big nuisance. Joining us on the line to uh, chat about the Hamilton situation is Chad Collins, City Councilor, Ward 5 here in uh, the city of Hamilton. Chad, nice to speak to you again. Thanks for having me on, Jamie. Um, the, we we think the estimate so far is around two point five million dollars. Of course, it could could go higher, right? We've got the ground very saturated here. It's raining heavily today. Environment Canada's mm -hmm. put out a weather statement today saying we're in for another heavy rain day, and who knows how many more we've we've got. Uh, this is a real challenge for you guys. Yeah, and I think that number is probably the tip of the iceberg. I mean, we've yet to see, as you just mentioned, you know, the, the we're seeing erosion along the entire Lake Ontario shoreline. And you mentioned the 50-point situation. It's precariously close to the trail in Confederation Park, and so we've closed off a portion there. And, you know, as we see the waters recede over time, hopefully uh, sometime in early June or, or just a bit later, we'll start to get a sense of what kind of damage has been incurred in terms of just on the lake in particular. Um, and we, we won't know that until the water is back to its normal level. And so 
you know, that two and a half million figure is just to start. Uh, we certainly understand that we've had uh, uh, closures in the West Harbor, on the West Harbor Trail, where the harbor waters are onto the trail and onto the benches and, and has eroded the bank to the point where the trail is starting to erode into the water. And, uh, of course, you know, we've seen the, the um, landslides on the escarpment this year, and we've seen the flooding in Dundas in terms of the creek overflowing and, and into the old town of Dundas. And so we're starting to see across the entire city in different areas and with different public infrastructure and with the natural environment, we're starting to see substantial damages. And, and it, we're not alone. Anyone who's read the news or has watched uh, TV over the last uh, month or so have seen similar situations in Ottawa, Montreal, and elsewhere, and so, and, and including uh, parts of the U.S., uh, our neighbours who border the Great Lakes as well, they're experiencing the same problems. And so it's, it's, um, it's certainly not a new phenomenon, but all of these uh, you know, infrastructure issues happening at the same time is something we haven't experienced before. Uh, particularly here in Hamilton, uh, we, we, you know, the, the way our city... Uh, sits uh, with the escarpment and and our access routes up and down mm-hmm. the escarpment and of course our our waterfront all of these things it's it's incredible how uh, much water can affect us in a negative way if there's just too darn much of it um, and of course I mentioned the sewage treatment plant mm-hmm. uh, as well at the beginning when you couple all of that and those challenges and and these rising uh, damage figures with what we already know about our city uh, which is you know our ongoing uh, headaches and problems and challenges mm-hmm. with infrastructure that that mm-hmm. handles handles yeah. water. Wow, that is just a a huge challenge. And then you throw all this natural stuff on top of that. Yeah. Um, there's only so much money to go around. Is there an opportunity for our city? And I would ask this right away as a taxpayer: Is there an opportunity mm-hmm. for our city to seek help from other levels of government to finance repairs in in the, these matters? There is, but they've set the bar very high. And so the, the the test right now in Ontario, the number to reach is 24 to 25 million. Oh, boy. Unless you, unless you reach that number, um, you, you're not uh, eligible under the current legislation. You're not eligible to seek uh, provincial and or federal assistance. And so we've got a ways to go. Uh, I'm not certain whether we're, we're going to reach that level when uh, all of the infrastructure issues are, are added up. We're investigating right now um, with provincial ministries and with provincial staff as to whether or not there is some assistance apart from the program that's traditionally advertised and offered to municipalities. But we're, you know, at that two and a half million that the re- you referenced, you know, even if we add a couple million to that, we're still a ways away from um, being eligible for provincial or federal funding. Chad, are, are there special uh, budgets, special pools of money that are uh, set aside for these types of occurrences? Or, um, you know, have we tapped all, all of those and, and shifted them and moved them? Is this just coming out of, the, out of general revenues in the city of Hamilton? Kind of explain how that's structured. Yeah, we have reserves that are set aside for instances where, as, as for instance, you know, we've, we've dealt with landslides in the past along the Kenworth access and some of the other accesses, and so we have reserves set aside for that. We have reserves set aside certainly for unexpected issues at the water sewage treatment plant, and we'll have to dip into general reserves to assist with the trail issues. Uh, staff are recommending that we undertake another erosion plan along Lake Ontario, so we undertook one in 2000 and. 16, and uh, we'll be doing another one, I'm certain, later this year once the water levels subside. And so all of those combined, uh, and you, you appropriately mentioned it, it's coming out of reserve. We certainly wouldn't have anticipated these things happening when we passed our budget earlier this year. Mm-hmm. But we know from time to time that unexpected expenses arise, and, th- and that's why you know we have reserves set aside 
for you know a rainy day and no pun intended and and we've you know we, we've we have the appropriate resources in hand you know if we start to experience though instances uh, and issues like ottawa and montreal and others are experiencing we, we wouldn't be prepared for that and and we would certainly need help from the province or the federal government to help us through something along those lines do you do the city council uh consult with um uh, natural phenomenon experts uh, mm-hmm. about whether or not these things are are you know five year trends, ten year trends. I mean, it wasn't that long ago that we were hearing that water levels in all of the Great Lakes were way down, and there was mm-hmm. a lot of concern about about that uh, in terms of the environment. And now we hear that the you know the levels are are too high. Is there any way at all to 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 tell? Uh, how much of a trend that is going to be so that you can plan or is it just hey mother nature's going to do what mother nature's going to do well i think it's a combination of those two things we certainly can't anticipate what's going to happen year to year but what we've started to look at is trends and so you mentioned the hundred year storms you know we're supposed to happen once every hundred years um and and we started to see the hundred year storms occur around 2005 we were seeing one or two of them every year and so we're now prepared we've made substantial improvements at the sewage treatment plant We've looked at areas of the city that were prone for fl- to flooding, and we've made infrastructure changes in terms of trying to increase capacity within the sewer system to assist those days. But there will be circumstances, Jamie, where when Mother Nature hits, you, you just can't be prepared from an infrastructure perspective to handle it. Burlington's example, um, just a couple of years ago when they were hit with that major storm, Toronto's been hit several time, times, and then, of course, we've been hit, 2009 being the biggest, when we had 7,000 homes flooded. There are certain things when, you know, when this, a storm rolls through and so much rain is falling in a short period of time, you just, there's, there's little you can do to prepare your infrastructure for those kinds of events. But there are things that we can do for, for some of the events that are a, a bit less intrusive than those in terms of making infrastructure changes. When it comes to rising lake levels, um, we've certainly been in contact with Canada Centre for Inland Waters. And, and they are uh, they have representatives on the uh, joint uh, commission between the Canada and U.S. staff that monitor Great Lakes levels and actually control the water levels on the Great Lakes and the St. Lawrence system. And so we're in cons- consultation with them. Of course, you know we've undertaken our own erosion studies. But I think in general, what we could all uh, um, you know come to some consensus on is that climate change will continue to have an impact on municipalities, provinces, and countries as the years pass. And we need to be prepared to make infrastructure changes to try to, as best we can, mitigate those impacts. Right. One of the things, just as you were uh, chat- talking there, that, that occurred to me was I haven't heard much, despite all of this rain, about uh, you know the, the results of some of those 100-year uh, quick flash deluges we had, you know, doing things mm-hmm. to the Red Hill Expressway, uh, doing things to homes uh, in the East End, uh, yep. you know, which is y- your zone. Um, yep. what, what has changed there, um, you know, since the last time we heard about problems in, in those areas? Well, we haven't seen the intense storm, so that's cer- certainly helped us. The rain we've experienced in the last couple of months has been, you know, drawn out over an extended period of time. And right. So it's a lot of a lot of rain falling, but over you know days and weeks rather than uh, hours or or you know just in in a day um, as we've experienced in in other years. So that that's one difference. The second issue is where we've experienced um, property damage to both public and private properties. Uh, it's been as a result of the rising lake levels or um, creeks and rivers overflowing. And so that's different than 
uh, what we've experienced in terms of flooded basements and those issues in the past. And hopefully, hopefully, uh, we will be able to uh, avoid those uh, this summer uh, again. Absolutely. Uh, because it seems like uh, we've got our playful. How, how does uh, council decide or how does the uh, city of Hamilton uh, bureaucracy decide uh, how to um, prioritize uh, the things that need attention when you've got a, you know, a $3 million damage uh tag uh, everything must uh, get repaired in a priority sequence how is that uh, arrived at well it's added to the work plans that we have in place okay so certainly staff have their own issues to deal with that are part of the regular capital budget but when we experience um you know trail closures and erosion in different areas flooded streets that ends up adding to our overtime costs and it ends up um, possibly pushing the regular workload aside because these are priorities that need to be dealt with. Many times it involves uh, health and safety issues, uh, and and so they're given priority over our regular uh, issues that would be included in our work plans. All right. Chad Collins, City Councilor, Ward 5, City of Hamilton. Uh, Always nice to chat with you on the air. Thanks so much for this. Thanks, Jamie. Take care. Bye-bye. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Spend the next little while talking about uh, the local economy. We're going to talk about the national economy, uh, how we move money, how we move trade. A recent article by William Watson in the Financial Post argues that Canada should be pushing for even freer trade. Uh, the article discusses how roughly a quarter of productivity growth between '95 and 2000 came from foreign countries, predominantly the U.S. Uh, via cheaper and uh, better imported inputs. Uh, The article also emphasized the need for the Canadian government to let industry that can't compete uh, in a more open market simply uh, die off. Uh, We've got Ian Lee with us. He's an associate professor at Carleton University uh, in economics. Ian, good to have you back. My pleasure, Jimmy. Um, so, if uh, William Watson's position in the Financial Post is if if freer trade, the headline is if freer trade kills off uh, these Canadian businesses, it would be better for everyone. Is that true? Well, what he's quoting is first off, he's an economist, a very distinguished economist at uh, McGill uh, University, and uh, well, you know McGill's a very good university. But but let's deal with the idea here. What he's saying is what has been taught in every first year economics course uh, for a very very long time, and. Um, the whole basis of the market economy, as we all know, even though it's not pretty and it's maybe not politically correct to say so, is that the, the stronger firms, firms that have become stronger over time because of their strategies and their success at innovating and developing new widgets and new products, uh, get stronger and they beat up uh, and compete against other companies. Um, and some of those companies fail every year. There are corporate bankruptcies annually in Canada. Several thousand firms go bankrupt every year. Uh, the same in the States, the same in Europe. Um, and so it's, it's a very, to be very blunt, it's a very Darwinian process. You know, the stronger firms, uh, the firms those firms that are successful at becoming stronger um, uh, overcome and defeat and uh, knock off the firms that are weaker. Mm-hmm. So Apple was once in the garage and it was a nothing and nobody and then it innovated and developed some really interesting products that everybody wanted to buy. So they became more and more successful. They hired more people. And in the process, killed off. Uh, that's the story that we don't often hear about is that the more successful companies, because they're building a product we want, the customers then shift their uh, uh, allegiances and loyalties from the products they were buying to the, the new company. And that's what he's really talking about. He's talking about 
we want companies to be stronger and more successful because that's the the most assured form of success. There's this narrative in Canada, and that's what he's referring to, that we can somehow protect our way to success. And and I do agree with Bill Watson. Um, full disclosure, I do know him. He's not a friend of mine, but I certainly have met him several times. And uh, the idea that we can, um, you know, protect companies and give them uh, to, to, to ensure their success, I think, is um, increasingly um, uh, unsustainable, but partly because trade agreements uh, are increasingly not allowing it. Um, and if you do do it, you're getting attacked. Look at Bombardier being attacked by, uh, by, um, uh, by Boeing in the United States and by Embraer in Brazil. So, you know, if we had to choose between protectionism of a company that's having, that isn't able to compete versus creating the conditions necessary to help a company compete, I think we should be looking to the latter because successful companies grow and hire more people. How much? But, companies don't. Okay, and how much uh, political uh, will is there for for that to happen? It's 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 those big companies that have all of the power and influence on the politics in in Canada and in other countries. Well, um, you're right, and you know I get emails all the time from people saying, "Don't you understand? Companies, uh, governments subsidize and and protect, and yes, they do subsidize some, but we should never get seduced." by this argument that because some governments or all governments do it a little bit of the time, therefore we should do it all the time with everybody. Most companies in this country and in the United States are not subsidized. Most com- companies are not protected. Loblaws is not protected. We don't have legislation that prevents a foreign food company called Whole Foods from coming into Canada and setting up uh, shop uh, operations. Mm-hmm. Retailers are not protected from Walmart coming into Canada, which they did. Uh, you know, Canadian Tire isn't protected from Walmart coming into Canada, or for that matter, Target. Target came into Canada, tried to compete, it failed. Mm-hmm. So it closed down all those stores. So, I mean, all Bill Watson is doing, even though the headline looks very provocative, he's describing the market economy in Canada and other countries, and it operates most of the time. That's the way it is working. There's a few exceptions. And that's what Trump is after us about. You know, we protect our dairy industry, our, our 12,000 dairy farmers, and people say, what's wrong with protecting the dairy industry? Well, most of our farmers are not protected. The beef farmers are not protected from competition. Neither are the hog farmers. Neither are the grain farmers. It's, uh, and, the, and the dairy farmers are only 5% of the total farming population in Canada. So 95% of our farmers operate in competitive markets where they're not protected the dairy farmers are only 5% of all the farmers in Canada, and they're protected. Likewise, telecom. And this is what we haven't talked about, Jamie. This is very important. Remember, and I say this all the time to my students, protectionism means what? It means keeping out foreign competitors so that domestic producers can increase their prices to you and me. We have some of the highest cell phone fees on the planet Earth for a reason, because we don't allow Verizon and other foreign companies, cell phone companies, coming into Canada. So we pay through the nose, very high cell phone fees. And the stupid thing is we're not even helping Bell. I mean, Bell's a very good company, and so is Rogers, and so is Shaw. But they would even be more competitive, and they would be stronger and produce even a better service to us if they were facing competition. And for some people who say, oh, that's just ideology, 
we're all watching the Stanley Cup playoffs right now. Does anybody suggest that the government should be protecting uh, the Ottawa Senators to ensure that one of those American teams doesn't win the Stanley Cup, you know? <laughs> well, that's idiotic. Yeah. They, yeah. Uh, let the best team win. You put your players out there, your defensemen, your goalies, your forwards, and let the best team win, and the best team is the team that scores the most goals. And that's how you win the hockey game. Yeah, but it's you know I, I hear what you're saying. It makes perfect sense. But you 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 know you take out you're taking out the greed factor. And these large companies are greedy, and they they want to uh, manipulate uh, politics in a way that will um, ensure that uh, the profits that they have are in place, and that they can continue to edge those profits up. Listen, uh, the best way to make profit is to come up with a better mousetrap. And and the best absolutely. example of uh, there's two companies right now that are just unbelievable. And I do not have any investments in them, and I do not consult to them. I have no interest in them, other than I'm a consumer of one of the two of them. One is Apple, and the other is Amazon. I am not an Apple user, okay? I am resolutely, I refuse to buy anything Apple. That does not mean it's not an outstanding company, and there's millions of people who insist on having, including my daughter, insist on having an Apple iPhone, and an Apple <laughs> computers, and so forth. Amazon is doing gangbusters, and it's approaching. It, it may Apple or Amazon are going to be the first company in the world history to become a one trillion dollar company, and they did it because not because they have protection from the government. They did it because they offer a better product, a better service to us than their competitors. That's why I go to Amazon all the time because I know that that product is better priced and it'll come to my door faster than anybody else. And that's the only reason why I go to Amazon. It's not because I'm loyal to them. The moment they stop giving me good service, I stop using them. And that's the essence of competition. And, and so these companies, you know, look at those two companies, how successful they are, and how, how they become in, in, their, in their competing. And you would don't, if we don't want to use American stories, look at Canadian Tire. It's one of the most successful retailers in this country, bar none. They're just outstanding. And yet they're taking on the Walmarts and the Amazons, and they're winning. So, you know, just because you're a Canadian company and you're not the size of Amazon doesn't mean you can't compete successfully. So people say, well, we can't compete against them because they're bigger than we are. That's nonsense. It's just as much nonsense as if we said, well, we're not going to send anybody to the Olympics because the Americans are ten times bigger. they got way more money to subsidize their athletes. So, therefore, we're not going to send anybody to the Olympics. Canadians go to the Olympics, and they actually win gold medals. So that, that theory that just because there's another company out there that's bigger or another country out there that's bigger, that's it, the, the game is over, it's not true. All right, Ian, we got to run. Thank you very much, as always, for this. Appreciate your passion. Okay, thanks Take a lot. care. Bye-bye. Right, bye. Bye. There's Ian Lee uh, from Carleton University, an associate professor at Carleton University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.